Last week I gave you a sort of overview of Daniel and the context of the whole book. Just a quick reminder, Daniel and his friends, who we'll be picking up reading about in a moment, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and then Daniel himself. These four young men were taken with a whole group of other uh, young noble men and women, I would imagine, young people from the sort of higher echelons of uh, society in Judah and Jerusalem. They were taken captive by the Babylonian army in 605 BC. And they were taken nearly a thousand miles from their home to Babylon, the city of Babylon, the centre of the empire, now in where modern-day Iraq is, roughly, probably near there, near Baghdad. And uh, it was a huge city. And in those days, we'd have considered it quite big, I think. It was huge by those days, uh, understanding of cities. I think it was one of those ones that had uh, two... Uh, it was on the, uh, a big bend of the Euphrates, had two harbours and all sorts of things... And it was full of the most amazing buildings. Nebuchadnezzar had some glorious buildings. Some of the seven wonders of the world were there. And it was a totally pagan city. They worshipped all sorts of different gods and goddesses and yet seemed to be very, very successful and powerful with different set of values and all the rest of it. So uh, for, for Daniel and his young friends, this was very, very overpowering and overwhelming to be taken there. They weren't old. In the uh, chapter we're about to read, I think most commentators would say with a fairly accuracy they were about 17 years old because that was the years at which you could be uh, begun to be prepared for the king's service. It was the age of adulthood in ancient Babylon. So it's no doubt that their faith was tested and they were probably pretty troubled about how they handled this new life they were in. Would they allow themselves... <coughs> to be assimilated by the Babylonians. That clearly is what the Babylonians plan to do. We can see that in a moment as we read a few verses. Or would they fight the Babylonians on every point? Would they be awkward, non-cooperative, dig their heels in, possibly end in jail or worse, executed, I guess, but would they just go down fighting? Well, they didn't really opt for either of those. They opt for a path that I think is one supported elsewhere in scripture and is sort of what both Paul and Jesus I think point us to that is in in Jesus words to be in the world but not of the world to keep our identity as God's people to be very conscious of who we are to to indeed live out of who we are act out of who we are as as Jesus people as followers of of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet be engaged in the world play a part in it and even influence it, influencing it for good in some cases, and we'll see Daniel later doing that as well, and being something of a light in a dark place. So as we read Daniel, we're going to learn how do we walk and live in modern Britain and the modern culture that we live in, which is anti-Christian sometimes. It's not sometimes it's just neutral, but it's powerful and it's very influential. How do we survive in an alien culture and yet bring glory to God and blessing to those around us, even those who don't follow God. Can we cooperate without compromising? Is that possible? How do we walk with integrity as Jesus followers? Well, all those lessons, I think, will begin to come out. Let's read Daniel 1 again, because it's a good story, and I want you to get it in you. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, it won't be something you, you'll know very well. This is the beginning of the story, <clears throat> and this all happened about two and a half thousand years ago. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. He was going to turn them into, if you like, that that is where it's beginning, into Babylonians, into absorbing the culture. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guards, it looks as though the guy was open to this and somehow passes the word that they can work with Daniel to the guard, who's the guy who really deals with them day by day. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Zechariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to, uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So these four young men gave God get to these four young men. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of their time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was a very mature but scary, a scary uh, uh, thing happened and a very mature reaction from Daniel and his friends for 17-year-olds. So this is not about old people who've learnt the skills of life. This is about some young, godly young men working out how to handle the challenges this alien culture brings on them. As I said last week, it would be very appropriate to parallel it with young people growing up in today's world with school and college and university or going to work. But it's a challenge for all of us. It fits the, what, the environment that all of us are living in. How do we cope when a culture is 
in a way alien to God and is very, very formative and is calling us to go with the flow, to be drawn along with it. And it started straight away. One of the first things Nebuchadnezzar's official did was change their names in verse 7. Now, this was obviously part of the process. He was going to teach them the language of Babylon, which they didn't fight. They accepted that and the literature. And then he changed their names. And it was quite an offensive, pointed thing that he did. I don't think he did it to offend them, but it was pretty hard to swallow. And I'll explain why. A bit of an indignity. You see, Daniel, the name Daniel, and names were important to the Israelites... Daniel meant, the Lord is my judge. The Lord being the great God, I am, Yahweh. Yahweh is my judge. Belshazzar, the name he was given, means Bel, which was the Babylonian chief god. Bel, protect him. So his name was, be looked after by the chief god of Babylon. Bel, protect him. Hananiah's name means, the Lord, Yahweh, shows grace. The Lord shows grace. What a lovely name. He's given the name Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, who was the moon god. So he's given the name under the command of the moon god. Mishael, in the Israelite name he has, is who is like to the Lord. Basically, no one is like the Lord. Great name. And he's given Meshach, which means belonging to the goddess Shak, which was the Babylonian name for Venus, belonging to Venus. Azariah, his name means the Lord is my helper. Great name. He's given Abednego, servant of Nebo. And Nebo was the shining one, the god of learning. So all these different gods, so the moon god, the god of learning, uh, you know, the chief god, Bel. There is deliberation here. You're going to be changed. So wake up, guys. You're going to have new names here. Uh, we forget all this about the Lord being gracious and the Lord doing this and that. And we're, you're going to be called this, this, this and this. They weren't great names. Now, we need to understand that words and language and names and descriptions are important. They are often a way by which a powerful culture tries to change people's thinking and their beliefs. They are important. What we say is important. We in modern Britain have been living through a time of change and the change has been significantly linked to the way language is used and the way words are used. I am not going to spend all morning on this, but we need to be aware that what we sometimes laughingly describe as PC, politically correct, phrasing and wording is often linked to an attempt to change culture, to change the way people think and the way people speak. It is a deliberate process. It's not always done with anger and hatred. It probably wasn't here. But it's done more with an arrogance or a confidence that the new culture is superior to the old one And we're going to change the way you think and act because what we've got is better than what you've had. And we want you to take it on board. And we have had innumerable examples going on in our country over the last decades. We won't even go into them because I can go off on one on those sort of things. But we need to be aware that is what's happening. It's not always neutral what you do with words. However, 
Daniel and his friends did not fight for this one. They didn't, li- they didn't feel this was a hill to die on. They didn't lie their, lay their lives down about what they were called. The names were significant. The names were probably offensive to them. But they didn't make an issue. Now, why is that? Well, I think there are at least two reasons that I can think of. One was that the, there is no direct command in the Bible about what you're called. It's not a violation of the old covenant to have a name that's a bit off. There's no uh, laws, shall we say, in Leviticus and stuff about what you're called. It wasn't nice, but it wasn't fundamentally, diametrically against the word of God. Secondly, and I think this is very important, they did not see their names as fundamental to their identity. And uh, let's just look at a quote from Matthew Henry. He wrote this nearly 400 years ago. It's from his commentary. They cha- if you could pop this one up, please, the next one. They changed their names, but they could not change their nature. Whatever they pleased to call them, they still retained the spirit of the Israelites, God's people. So he said, he's saying something very profound and right. What they called them, what words we have to use, does not change our identity. We need to be secure and strong that we are God's people. We belong to Jesus. Now what terminology and words and funny ways of putting things and slightly uncomfortable odd stuff goes on that doesn't alter who you are in Christ. And they didn't see this as altering their fundamental identity. They retained their identity as children of God. They retained their focus on the true living God. As we said last week, they had fellowship together and prayed together. You'll see that later in the book. And actually, they seem to use their God names, their old Israelite names, to one another. It's interesting that they're still used a little bit as you go through verse 11 and then into chapter 2, verses 17 18. That's partly the writer, but it might have been Daniel who wrote it. But, but basically, they keep some of those privately. Although when they're dealing with the Babylonians, they have to accept being Belshazzar. That comes out too in the book. But privately, they possibly kept their Jewish names. Okay, so the next question, why did they resolve not to defile themselves with the royal food and wine? Why did they stand on this one? What was their thinking? Well, they understood that they were God's people, God's Old Testament people, and that they did not belong to Babylon. They belonged to Zion, to the city of God. And as this issue emerged, they worked out this one is a big one. And it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Resolve not to defile himself is pretty strong language. Resolve, in your authorised version, will be purposed in his heart, which is a lovely way of putting it. It was a strong decision inside. He thought it through and he purposed in his heart. But there's another strong word there, defile. Oh, that's a bit much. Defile himself. They realised this was bringing them into direct conflict with their covenant with the living God. It brought clarity to the, to the confusion. It made it a bit foggy, the names and learning the literature. We'll go with that. But this one was in direct contravention to some of the things God had told them. Now, for us, in our covenant, the new covenant, food is not an issue. And in fact, it sounds quite nice, doesn't it? Food from the royal table and royal wine. I think, ooh, I think I quite might have, might have made more fuss about the names than that. But... We don't live in the Old Covenant. 
they lived in the old covenant. They were men of God. They knew their Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. You read that. You read the covenant relationship God had with his people. You can read one chapter, Leviticus 11, and you'll find quite detailed instructions about what God's people should and shouldn't eat. It was very important to the Israelites. Now, we don't fully understand all the reasons, but I think they're quite clear, most, most the main reasons why God gave them those laws. A big one was this, that that made them distinct from the people around. All the nations around worshipping the other gods ate all sorts of things, but they, in their following of God, had a fairly restricted, relatively speaking, pure diet. And it showed them that they were special people set apart for God. As we perhaps already heard this morning, they wouldn't have eaten pigs. They wouldn't have eaten shellfish. They only ate fish with fins and, and, and scales. They, they wouldn't have eaten all sorts of things, owls and uh, insects, things you might not want to eat. But, but there's some things you would want to eat. They'd eat rabbits. <laughs> you know, that there were a number of things they didn't eat, distinguishing them from the people around. Probably there was a health element. Honestly, God was keeping them safe and healthy, particularly as they went through the desert in their wanderings towards um, the Promised Land, because that's when they got most of these rules. But they were very important to the Israelites. They were part of their covenant. They had some symbolic meaning as well as practical. And they knew that if they ate some of this food, they would become defiled. They would be unclean. They would be the same as all the nations around. There'd be nothing distinct. And much of the king's food probably was what you'd call undefiled. And they thought about this, and they realized they couldn't do it by picking and choosing. Just imagine it. So in comes the food, and they go, um... Uh, is that pork or is that lamb? Uh, are those mussels? I mean, is that fish or is that lobster? Um, uh, could you tell me exactly where that's come from? Exactly how that's been killed? Uh, and, uh, oh, I, I'm okay with the potatoes, but, well, I mean, it would be just annoying, confusing, weird to the Babylonians as well as to them. And it's probably pretty stupid because they probably still make a mess of it. And actually, some of the animals would have been offered to idols. So they'd be mixed up with idolatry anyway. So they made a decision. We'll have none of it. We'll have none of it. Just vegetables and water. Now, it's not because they massively suddenly had a revelation about veganism or something. They knew, I cannot mess about with this one. We can't have a pick and choose, bits here, bits there. Who knows where it all comes from? Who knows which ones have been offered to idols and which one haven't? Let's keep back from it. It's not only about the, the probably the idolatry, it's even about the uncleanness. Of, you know, they're just thinking everything. It's a horrible mixture. Vegetables and water alone. So what can we learn from what they did? Let's move on to the next question. What can we learn? I would just like to encourage you on three areas that I think we learn from Daniel and company. One, first of all, let's keep pure in our day and age. This was a different thing from what we contest with. Ours is a different covenant, a different age. But essentially, they realised... This is an area we've got to keep from impurity. We've got to keep from defilement. And the only answer is to say no pretty early on. I would argue that for us, as Christians, there are many areas, but probably the whole area of sex and sexuality is a big one. 
for all of us at all ages. We live in a culture which has swept in the opposite direction to what most of us would have uh, been brought up in at my age or would see as a Christian value system. So it would now be very common for people to sleep together quite young in life. It would be very common for people to sleep together, live together, have sex together before they're married. In fact, many, and I've seen this happen as a pastor, many non-Christian parents would counsel their young people to sleep and live with their boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé to make sure you get on well before you get married. It's seen as a sensible, logical thing to say. And uh, sometimes when we've been working with young couples who don't want to do that, it's their parents who are angry and saying, why is the church telling you not to do that? It's a very sensible thing to do. And you suddenly realise we're going in the opposite direction to the whole culture. And then there's lots of things. I mean, just to give you examples, when I was, uh, when I was 17, roughly... When I was doing my A-levels, we had a debating society, which was very popular, because the boys' grammar school I went to met with the girls' grammar school for the debating society. So that was one of the reasons it was very popular. So you, you, you get quite a lot of people there. I remember us debating, and I, I can't remember exact wording. I was thinking about this as I prepared. Something like, this house believes that sex before marriage is not wrong. I think it was something like that, or it might have been the other way round. But the debate was, is sex before marriage wrong? And it was a lively debate, and the overall vote was for it's not wrong to have sex before marriage. So it's quite liberal, the result. In a totally secular school, a state school, it wasn't a Christian church school, but there was a lot of debate, and probably a lot of people voted that it was wrong of my generation. This is the 60s, lots going on. But people were thinking about that. Now, I think that would be considered pretty laughable to be a major debating issue amongst 17 or 18-year-olds today. But if you think of how it's changed, just even using your imagination that that we now have same-sex marriage and it's legally the same as heterosexual marriage, abortion on demand is multiple millions have probably been aborted in those years, and actually... All of that is just like uh, straws in the wind, just like the iceberg tip of a massive cultural change. And although I don't agree with, say, making homosexuality a criminal offence, I think that was wrong. Of course I do. I don't think you should do that. No more than it should be a criminal offence to get divorced. That shouldn't be a criminal offence. It's not the business of the state to do things like that. Nevertheless, that's another area, divorce, for example, where the whole culture has massively, massively changed. And yet we, trying to follow the word of God, would technically be not changed very much. Not because we're Victorian or we're out of date, but because we're following this. The culture's changed, but all the way through, we would try to follow this. So all through my life, I would not think that it should be a criminal offence, homosexual acts. And I would have had friends who were homosexual and, and accepting of them, and they were good friends. And all through my life as a pastor, I've had to deal with all of these things and be compassionate and caring, people who've divorced, people who've fallen into sin. But it doesn't alter what my belief is rooted in the Word of God. I hope you don't feel this is an unhelpful digression, but I'm just saying we have our battle areas and they're not so different. We have to think through how are we going to stand our ground. There's many, many other examples I could give. 
How do we, what do we decide what to say yes to and what to say no to? How do we stand and stay pure? Now, Jesus said something pretty radical, which is going to go up, I think, now. Uh, Matthew 5. And I'm not going to linger over it. It needs a bit of understanding because Jesus talked in very dramatic terms. But essentially, he said, you have to make sometimes a very strong stand and say, no, I'm not going there. I won't do that. And he talks in in vivid terms, which I don't think you're meant to take literally. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, etc. And cut off, throw it away. In other words, rather like Daniel and his friends, you sometimes have to say, I just won't go there. I'm just not going to do that. Because that brings me into a place of compromise. And it's not just about sex things. Of course it's not. Jesus would have spoken. Let's quickly highlight. Jesus would have spoken to his followers about not being corrupted by things like lying, greed, materialism, hatred, unforgiveness, pride, stealing, anger, violence, envy. All sorts of things that Jesus, and lust of course, all sorts of things that Jesus said, if you're following me, you have to be careful to keep pure. You don't get compromised in these areas. We simply can't go with everything that the culture wants to draw us into. Jesus, there will be times when we realise this is something Jesus came to cleanse me from and I am being drawn into it and I'm even being told it's a good thing. I mean, think of this food. The the Babylonians would have struggled to understand. Why wouldn't you want food from the king's table, for goodness sake? There is a million people here who give their right arm for food from the king's table. There are thousands upon thousands of Babylonians that say, Oh, if only, what a privilege, what food. And you don't want it? What's the matter with you? Can you imagine how people thought? Use your imagination. It wasn't like, Oh, yeah, that's okay. People thought, You must be mad. You have the privilege and the pleasure of food from the king's table and you don't want it. Now, you just can't explain all that. You just can't. And as Christians, you can't explain it all. We just don't sleep together till we're married. You can try. What are you talking about? You're mad. You know, you're you're going to be celibate unless you're married? You know, you you can't always cover all the bases. You have to graciously stand your ground. And many other things to do with lying and materialism. I don't want to, as I say, that's an easy one to explain. But Daniel resolved to make a decision. That means they made a purpose. They thought it through. They didn't think we'll wait and see how we cope. This was not, uh, what should we say, an existential decision. Let's just see how it feels. When the food comes, well, I think you'd feel like, oh, I'd rather like that. They didn't wait and say, oh, we'll just see how far we can go and then see if we don't can stop. Or we'll just see, oh, it looks quite nice. No, no, perhaps we... No, no, they decided beforehand, no, we don't want it. We'll just have vegetables and water, please. Just vegetables and water. Don't even give us the food. That's a clarity. It's like saying, I won't have sex before marriage. I won't watch porn. I won't lie. If I'm asked to lie, I won't do it. I won't steal. I won't cheat. I will do my exams. I will not cheat. I won't plagiarise. I just won't do it. I won't get drunk. I can have one drink. I think I can cope with that. I won't get drunk. I'll never get drunk. I'll always be the one to drive people home, whatever little tool I use to help. I won't take drugs in any form. I won't try them. I won't experiment with them. I won't take them. I don't do drugs. Don't even ask me. I won't give myself body and soul to the company. 
don't ask me to live 24-7 for this company. You won't promote me? Fine. I own, I'm owned by Jesus, not by this company. I belong to Jesus Christ. I don't belong to this company. I'll work hard for this company. I'll work properly. I'll deserve my wages, but I will not give you my whole life. I've got a family and a church and a, a, a saviour to follow. I don't do it. I don't give my life and soul to anything other than Jesus. You have to, I will not break my marriage vows. Things are tough. We're not getting on well, but I will not break my marriage vows. I won't do it. These are the sorts of decisions we make which are not dissimilar from Daniel. This is clear. I've thought about it. I've resolved it. Vegetables and water. It's the only answer. Now, once he'd resolved, Daniel took the initiative. Did you notice that? He didn't just sit around waiting for the subject to come up, hoping it would go away, perhaps. He took the initiative, and he went straight to them and said, look, this food business, this is what we would like to do. And so he then took the initiative, which I think in itself is a great example. Now, I've got a little side issue here, and I'm not going to spend long on it. But I just felt I've got to be practical talking about this. I've already thrown up some some subjects, but I actually want to very briefly give you some New Testament guidelines which apply to almost any area, films and and porn and work and lying and materialism and also you could, and greediness and overeating and overdrinking. You could, you could almost say there's so many. Where, where do we learn? Our culture takes us in so many ways. Being obsessed with our bodies, being obsessed with whether they're looking right and looking good and all the masses of stuff that's thrown at us. Well, let's just quickly take some very quick principles for grey areas. Here they are, very quickly. Just a verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Let's pop them up fairly speedily. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Here's some principles. Only look for what benefits you and benefits others. Is it beneficial materially, mentally, physically, relationally, spiritually? What's the benefit in it? Or is it damaging? Does it master me? Do I end up being trapped by it, dependent on it? Can I say no to it? If I can't say no to it, it's mastered me. Does it become a habit I can't break? They're good principles to think about. Here's another one, very quick. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Wow, that's an important principle. What is the impact of what I do on other people? What's the impact on other Christians? What's the impact on even my non-Christian friends? What impressions am I giving of what Jesus is like by lying or lust or swearing or whatever it is? What impression am I giving of Jesus to the world around? What is the impact on other people of what I do? Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Isn't that lovely? You can do anything you like as long as you do it for the glory of God. Can you honestly say this is glorifying to God? Can you say, I know God's happy. I know God's glorified by this stand, this action, this word, this, this behavior. And finally, which is slightly similar, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love this. It's so straightforward and yet profound. Can you give thanks to Jesus for what you're doing? 
Lots of good things you can. Lots of things you enjoy. Beautiful music, a, 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 a thoughtful, um, I don't know, book or film or anything. It's not that it's only holy things, but can you genuinely give thanks openly to Jesus and to God in the name of Jesus for what you do? If you're watching a dodgy film or doing something suspect, you won't be able to give thanks to Jesus. There are principles, beneficial. Am I mastered by it? Does it cause others to stumble? Is it glorifying to God? Can I give thanks for it? If you can, enjoy. I think there are basic principles. Let's talk quickly. The last two are quicker. Keep pure, keep humble. Did you notice how Daniel stays humble and respectful towards those Babylonians that are over him in charge, the court official and the guard? Daniel is courteous and humble and respectful. He doesn't expect these guys to fully understand what his issues are. He doesn't. He doesn't expect them to get the whole defilement purity thing. They, they wouldn't get it, as I've indicated already. So he begins to see what is worrying them. <laughs> and the guy is worried, you're going to look, like the king's food, everybody will look really healthy. Vegetables and water. You're going to look an absolute wreck. You're going to come in all skinny and weird. And then I'll get in trouble. What's wrong with these three? And if I said, well, they've been eating vegetables, I'll be executed. And that probably wasn't an exaggeration. So his worry wasn't, oh, you, you, your odd beliefs. His was me and my head. My worry is my head. Now, actually, that's real. I mean, that's real. I mean, people at work say, look, I'm worried about, we're not fulfilling this principle. You're, you're breaking this code of behavior if you share Jesus with people. You know, your praying for people is, is causing our problems with our da-da-da-da. I understand that's what you have to think. What are these people worried about? This guy is worried. He's, he likes Daniel. His heart's open to Daniel, but he doesn't like the consequences. If you do this, I can be in trouble. Now, Daniel understands that, and look how he handles it. He puts the pressure on himself, not the official. I think that is so gracious and right. He says, okay, what do I mean by pressure? You can see. He says, okay, let us do it for 10 days. Obviously, I didn't go into the king very regularly. Let's go for 10 days, and if we look poorly compared to the others... Fine, you can feed us the king's food. But if we're looking well and strong, then can we go with it? Now, what's that mean? The pressure's on him and his friends. They're going to have to pray. They're going to have to say, God, please vindicate us. God, please help us. We want to, we want to do this right. Please stand for us, Lord. That's the pressure. The, the official's got no pressure. All right, feed the poor souls some vegetables then. And he goes and looks at them and, wow, you look better than the others. Oh, that's all right then. That's all he's worried about. Of course it is. He's a Babylonian. All he's worried about is, oh, wait, well, you look fine. Okay, then. And so the pressure is on Daniel. Now, can we handle things similarly? I can't give you examples. But we have to handle them similarly. We have to think, I can't put my values on other people. I can't pressurize them because I'm umpy. You know, how do you handle the work on Sundays thing? I know it's tricky. I mean, it's never been much of a problem for me. It's because of, well, life, you know. <laughs> You know what it's like. I'm joking. But, but, but you, you know, I mean, how do you handle it? You have to think through. It's no good just sticking your chest out and saying, well, you ought to understand I'm a Christian. So you may have to find a way of compensating, saying, well, I'm prepared to take a, a, a late night shift instead or a pay cut or, okay, I'll do that and I'll do that. And maybe you'll end up with a sort of compromise, but you're coming to terms with their world. Their world's not your world. Amen? 
We have to learn. We have to pray. We have to resolve. These guys thought about it. They worked it out. They prayed together. And they said, right, okay, let's, let's offer him 10 days. And if we're not looking healthy and well, we'll have to go with what he says. I think it's wise and it's good. And God backs it up. God, it says in the Bible, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, let's put up this last verse, Isaiah 66. Look at that. This is what God says. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. God loves humility. God will back it up. If you, and this is what, literally what happens to Daniel. The ones I look on with favour, says the Lord, those who are humble, contrite, tremble at my word. So Daniel's got it. He's trembling at God's word. He wants to obey God's word about the food, but he's also humble and thoughtful about other people. And God backs him up completely. Finally, keep walking by faith. So they're hum- they, they keep pure. This is a lesson from Daniel to us. Keep thinking purity. Be humble. And keep humble before men and before God. And keep walking by faith. Daniel and, and his friends are men of faith. There is a confidence about Daniel, but it's not cockiness. It's not self-confidence. He doesn't strut into the officials and say, well, we don't want to eat this food. No, no. There's a confidence is in God. He's gracious because his confidence is in God. It's not in himself or in, or in these officials. He's taking a risk. He's going out on a limb, but he is determined that he's going to live as a child of God in his generation, his covenant. And I think that is a lesson in how do you walk by faith? You trust God and you obey God and you have to leave the consequences to God. Sometimes you just have to leave it. So he, he, he moves with graciousness and humility. But in the end, he knows who he is. He's a child of God. He's a follower of God. He's a pe- people of God. He knows this is not something you eat. It's part of his covenant relationship with God to keep pure. And so he's going to say, Lord, please vindicate me. I can't do this. I've got to obey your word. That's what he says. And in effect, that's how they live by faith. They do that believing that God is trustworthy. That God is involved in their lives. They know even the Lord had a hand in the Babylonians' victory and us ending up here in Babylon. They do not believe that God's lost control or gone asleep. They know God is with them. They know God's truth and they want to live by his truth. And they're just going to go for it and they're going to ask God to, to, to protect them and vindicate them. Now later on in the book of Daniel, we'll see, they had bigger challenges than this. They had greater miracles than this. But even early on, they get a taste that God will back you up. Because he will. And so there's several little things, aren't there, just tucked away in there that are quite interesting. Verse uh, 9, it says, God caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. So that the guy just, was, just had a, a heart for Daniel. He just showed Daniel favour and compassion. That was the hand of God. At the end of 10 days, verse 15, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of those who ate the royal food. Well, that was partly because it was nice, sensible, healthy food. You know, all lentils and broccoli and <laughs> lettuce and things like parsnips and turnips and things. I like all of those things, really. Shut up. <laughs> That wasn't in the script, man. Uh, uh, 
It was partly because they were healthy things, but it was more than that. These guys stood out. Wow, they look really healthy and strong. They stood out. God did something. And then verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding, etc. Of all that. So God gave them understanding even when they were having to learn Babylonian literature. God gave them a godly understanding of it that they were able to grasp it with their God thinking, if I can put it that way, out of their own roots of learning the word of God. And God helped them in very sort of natural, supernatural ways. It's, it was supernatural, but it was natural. That the guy who was in charge favoured them. Even gave them a chance of the 10-day thing. That was the hand of God. That when they ate the food, they looked really well and fit. That was the hand of God. That when they had to study this literature, God gave them a clarity in understanding it and putting it in a context where they did not lose their reverence for the sovereign Lord who was over all. That came through in later parts of the story. And so God can do that for you and me as we walk by faith. It doesn't have to end in disaster, but you have to trust God for the outcome. I cannot guarantee it will always work like that. You'll see in later stories, sometimes the protection is pretty last minute when you're already in the fiery furnace, or already in the lion's den. It's not always, well, it'd be nice to avoid the lion's den. Well, yes, it would, but it doesn't always work that way. And, and actually, sometimes the Red Sea only opens when you get to it, or the Jordan only opens when you put your feet in it, which is what happens at the beginning of Joshua. And sometimes it's just you have to do it, and you've got to trust God. If you don't do this, we're walking straight into a sea. We're walking straight into a river in flood. And, and you have to accept. That's how it goes, and let God bring a way through. Well, God can. That's the encouraging thing. God can change the thinking of an unbelieving boss or, or change the circumstances of what's happening at the uni or the college. God can help you to come through what looks insurmountable, but you can't wait until it is removed before you make the faith step. You've just got to go for it in obedience. Amen? That's how we live for it. We've got to trust God for the outcome. When I was a little boy... Whoa, long time ago, even longer ago than being my A-levels, we used to have a chorus that we sang, Dare to be a Daniel. Has anybody ever heard of that chorus? I thought I might get Jim to lead it, but nobody under about 60 knows it. But Dare to be a Daniel. This is one of the lines in it. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to have a purpose true and dare to make it known. It's a good line, isn't it? Dare to have a purpose true and dare to make it known. Yeah, would you dare to do that this week? Can you dare to have a purpose true? I know what I should do. I'm going to make it known. I'm going to take it on. I'm going to say, no, I don't do that. I'm going to live graciously, but I'm going to be gracious, but I'm going to live pure.